sweet of him. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. That UFO podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes all running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. This is Lou Elizondo and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. Very excited to kick this one off. We've kept it quiet, we've not hyped this one up online and I'm looking forward to people hearing it as it gets released. Uh, No high noon announcements for this one. We're going to go straight in with Mr George Knapp and Dr Colm Kelleher. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Good to be here. Good to see you again. Yeah, no, thank you very much, George. It's good to have you back on anytime, of course, as well. And listen, congratulations, both of you. And obviously, James Lakatsky as well on the wonderful book. I've got the copy of it right here. Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, an insider's account of the secret government UFO program. Quite a title. It's quite eye-catching. It's caused a huge amount of discussion. George, let me direct the first question to you. Why was now the right time to release this book? Well, we've been wanting to release it for a while. I think Colm and I started working on it with Jim about two and a half years ago, and we certainly wanted it out a lot sooner, but there was a, there's a DOPSER process, a review process by the Pentagon that took 14 months uh, to complete. So there was a lot of time in between that uh, we were just sort of uh, waiting around for them to get things on and, and get it done. Um, it's always a good time to have more information about these programs. You know, I've been speaking in public for the last couple of years. And, and even though I was not part of the program, I I was allowed to know a little bit about what was going on in it. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And, uh, and I would dribble bits and pieces out, uh, in, in this sense to, uh, to deflect some of the bad information that's been out there. There's been a lot of confusion about what ATIP was, what ATIP wasn't. Um, some speculation about OSAP, but of course, most of the focus has been on ATIP, which was a much smaller effort than OSAP. OSAP is maybe the biggest UFO study ever, uh, given how many personnel were working on it, how much money they had to work on it. They could have always used more. It could have been bigger and accomplished more. That's certainly true if it had been allowed to continue. But with the world now really interested in focusing on UFOs, and UAPs and related phenomena, it seemed like a good time to go ahead and get it out as quickly as we could. Um, You've prompted my next question, George. You've done this before. Now, um, there's been some confusion over OSAP, ATIP, uh, and funding, which you've just addressed. Was there crossover between ATIP, DOD, and OSAP, DIA? Or was it a conscious decision to carry on OSAP in a much more focused manner as ATIP due to a drop in resources from a lack of funding? 
a lot of truth in what you said there. It's a kind of a mix and match, and it's probably better for Column to answer that. I'll give you some of that. Uh, OSAP was the mother program. It's the one that got the $22 million. That $22 million that was uh, secured by Harry Reid and some of his colleagues in the Senate went to this program. DIA initiated it. DIA oversaw it. The contract was awarded to Bass. $22 million was given to Bass over two-plus years. And uh, they they hired um, more than 50 people, as many as 75, I think, but Column can address that. Uh, they did the work. They did the boots on the ground work. They built a gigantic database. They did that work. At the same time, there was sort of a parallel effort inside the Pentagon, a much smaller effort. Um, from what we know, it did not have a, an office and did not have a budget, <clears throat> although I think Lou has indicated they did have some funding from somewhere. And uh, that was a smaller focused effort that looked on at uh, military encounters with UFOs, whereas ATIP, uh, OSAP rather, was looking at a much broader picture, UFOs and related phenomena that took uh, the investigators into some very strange areas. There was interaction on, a, on occasion between those two groups, um, and Colm can probably fill in that. Yeah, George, I, I think you pretty well summarized it uh, very well. Um, the main thing that OSAP was focused on was um, at the very, very start of this, um, we had a lot of, um, I, I suppose, intellectual firepower that came together in designing the OSAP program. People like Jacques Vallée, uh, Hal Putoff, Robert Bigelow, uh, John Schusler, and other people. Um, and the, the decision was made very early on to include both the standard uh, UFO investigation uh, framework, which is the nuts and bolts sensor-driven framework, but also secondly, and in parallel, uh, the human effects, which is much more complicated, much more messy, much more expensive. And we were very, very lucky that Dr. Lekatsky at the D Defense Intelligence Agency also had a team with him who were also very, um, willing to open the doors to be on sensor-driven research. Um, and sensor-driven research obviously is the nuts and bolts of, of the entire field of, of ufology. But the human effects, I mean, UFOs do affects, affect humans. So uh, the OSAP people and the DIA people came together and agreed at the very beginning of this program to essentially run both in parallel. So the design of the OSAP program, even the people we hired, and also the people, um, the actual projects that were, were tasked out to people on a daily basis, not to mention the design of the architecture of the, uh, the, the UFO uh, data warehouse, as, as we called it. Um, all of this was designed from that original cause, which was we're going to study both the nuts and bolts aspects of UFOs as well as the human effects. Now, obviously, human effects go all the way from the initial sort of uh, what, what John Mack used to call ontological shock, you know, the, the change in worldview, um, all the way through physiological effects, pathological effects, medical injury cases, psychological effects, and then, you know, further on, um, as you get into deeply investigating um, the same group of eyewitnesses over time, they start spilling out these secrets that 
you know, weird things are starting to happen in, in their surroundings. Um, and that leads into, you know, uh, dreams are being affected. Psychology is being affected. So human effects is very complex, but also very necessary. So uh, the OSAP program, I believe, is pretty unique um, in the annals of U.S. government programs in both focusing on the nuts and bolts as well as the, the human effects. Colm, I'd love to follow up with that. What obstacles did you encounter from the US government when OSAP was operational? And did the nickname ATIP keep you off the radar in some cases? Um, certainly, uh, the last part of your question, certainly that was the case because um, within less than a year of the program running, it became obvious that you know we were we the the program was actually running below the radar for quite quite some time, um, but it was decided because of the amount of progress that was ma- being made in certain certain areas that uh, Senator Reid decided to go ahead and pen a letter and begin the process of initiating a, a special access program. In order to do that, um, he sent a letter. And he used for for uh, security purposes, he used a nickname. It wasn't OSAP, it was ATIP. That's the genesis of the ATIP moniker. So ATIP um, later on was used, as George uh, mentioned, in, in a separate Pentagon uh, program um, that was focused mostly on the, the threat analysis to what was going on both on east and west coast of the United States. But the, the uh, OSAP attempt at special access program uh, designation ran into some bureaucratic hurdles as we talk in the book. But um, again, there was a distinction between OSAP and ATIP, even from that perspective. ATIP was a, a nickname that was used for OSAP in Senator Harry Reid's letter to the uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense. Now, both of you, I'd like to mention that uh, the experiences mentioned in the book uh, sometimes are nothing short of harrowing. George, when I interviewed you earlier in the year, you mentioned the hitchhiker effect was something that you had potentially experienced yourself or at least had had followed to potentially part of the family too. Given your knowledge of what others have experienced and have subsequently, subsequently suffered medical effects, what goes through your mind in moments like you've talked about in the book? Well, we're talking about the hitchhiker effect. And, you know, the the, the NIDS team that had been on Skinwalker Ranch had uh, had experienced some of that during their first study. Uh, it became uh, more harrowing, uh, to use your word, during the OSAP study. Things would follow you home. In essence, what happens on the ranch doesn't stay on the ranch. And it's it's hard to get your head around that. It's harder still to believe that it's true, but it is. Uh, I had, over the last couple of years before the book came out, had described some of those experiences, some of them inartfully, I had described them in public presentations. And, you know, I, I think people probably thought I was making it up or was completely exaggerating. Now, with the book out, you can see that I wasn't exaggerating. The people to whom this happened, uh, I mean, it happens to a lot of folks who went under the, under the ranch property. And no one could really explain why. The term hitchhiker, I think, was described by one of the intelligence operatives who visited the ranch during the OSAP study. And the stories that we've told are of these big, tough, experienced, battle-hardened uh, agents and operatives, intelligence officers, 
who would visit the property. They're ready to take on anything. They're not afraid of what it is. And then they encounter very strange things. Uh, the one story that that Colum uh, puts uh, in the book is about these three operatives who are on the property one night walking through the middle homestead, and they run into, in effect, a cold front, this really chilly uh, area where the temperature drops about 20 degrees right in the middle homestead. They back off for a while, and then they walk forward again. And through infrared, they see this gigantic oval of black. I mean, blacker than the sky, blacker than anything could be seen. And they got a fearing feeling of menace out of there. And uh, in essence, they froze for a while. They uh, backed off. They were frightened way out of proportion to what they should have been, given that their experience and, and bravery in the first place. And then all three of them carried it home with them. They, uh, they get home and this thing starts spreading sort of like a virus, which is column specialty. But it uh, goes from the people who were on the ranch to their family, to their family's friends, uh, strange apparitions, crypto creatures, poltergeist type activity. We're not making this stuff up. It happened to a lot of the people who went on the ranch, and it happened to me and also to Mr. Biglow. And I don't know if Colin wants to share his experiences or not. And again, I never saw anything on the ranch that I would consider to be anomalistic uh, or paranormal or supernatural, but I tried. You know, I went there a couple of dozen times and I would bring little things home. I'd bring bits of rock and, and uh, wreckage from the homesteads and tried to engage with it, uh, but I still never saw anything. My wife, however, did. And I, I don't want to go into a lot of details, but it started with these blue orbs that were over our house and then something that came into our bedroom and it was a very harrowing experience. Uh, but we can't exactly explain the mechanism of how that happens or what it is that attaches to people. But it happens. Uh, Colum has some better stories than I do about it. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> um, well, I, I can I can certainly attest to um, going back all the way, you know, to 1996. Um, we did we did occasionally uh, when we first joined uh, National Institute for Discovery Science in uh, June of, or June of 1996. Um, that was around the same time that Robert Bigelow had purchased the Skinwalker Ranch. And so we were deployed as scientific personnel to sort of co-locate with sensors up there to see what we could see in, in terms of validating the sensors and the sensors would validate us. Um, but <clears throat> quickly it became obvious, you know, when I, when, when I would come home after five, five days or a couple of weeks on the ranch, that some stuff would be noticeable in the house. You know, my wife would, would, uh, would, you know, describe some stuff in the house, but it never reached the same level of sort of, uh, what, what you guys have called harrowing experiences. My experience of it was, was, was fairly low key, but, you know, as George also mentioned, um, every single military intelligence officer, who was on that ranch, uh, brought something home with them, having experienced something on the property. So normally my experience, having spent maybe 300 plus days on Skinwalker Ranch, um, is that it's the exception rather than the rule to experience anything. But it was really note noteworthy that all five of these uh, military intelligence people from the Navy, from the Army, uh, you know, from different, different organizations, all five of them experienced um, stuff on the ranch. 
And secondly, all five of them brought a hitchhiker or whatever that is uh, home in that 3,000 miles away on the East Coast, their homes became the equivalent of a paranormal Disneyland and where, where dark shadows were sort of um, appearing in their bedroom, orbs of various colors would be floating around the house, black cubes would suddenly appear, heavy footsteps would appear on the, you know, be heard on the stairs. People would rush out to see what, what was going on and nobody was there. That became commonplace in the homes of all five people. And notably, it was the families who experienced it. Something that I struggle to get my head around, Colm, is with so much of this phenomenon being experienced in those ways you're talking about, uh, and you're talking about intelligence officials seeing black you know, portals, for lack of a better word, opening up and why is the US government happy to give up control of such a place to the point that's now on TV on the History Channel under the, the you know ownership of Brandon Fugel? Well, uh, to be honest, um, you know, I think it would take a very hardened, uh, sort of open-minded person in the US government to be able to talk and brief Senate Intelligence Committee staffers and uh, and senators on what essentially was was a litany of Halloween kind of, of weirdness. Um, it, it would it would be a very difficult thing to do um, to be taken seriously. So I, I have a certain amount of sympathy with the the um, the softly softly approach, which is essentially stick to the nuts and bolts. Um, Part of this, and that's exactly what the UAP task force has been sort of uh, moving through the various uh, Senate intelligence committees, etc., um, in order to establish a beachhead in the in the United States government. I I have a lot of sympathy with 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 that whole approach because um, we were very very lucky at OSAP to be given the green light to essentially. Um, approach this from an umbrella perspective. That was very rare. I mean, if you go back in history, you look at Project Sign, Project Grudge, Project Blue Book, none of these programs really had the terms of reference that the OSAP program had, and none of them became quite as large or quite as as all-embracing as the OSAP program. So in our opinion, the OSAP program is probably a unique template upon which maybe a future program could be structured. But, you know, as I said, one step at a time. And I I do have a lot of sympathy with that concept of one step at a time. Let me add, Andy, you know, this is the the brilliance of the OSAP approach is that they were going to follow the evidence wherever it led, however weird it might seem. You know, the DIA, if they, they, the, it was highly unlikely DIA would ever assign its own personnel other than Jim Lekatsky to investigate something so weird. Uh, it would be cut off in a minute. That was part of the challenge for Bass is, you know, is keeping this in a stovepipe so that the rest of the Pentagon didn't find out exactly what they were going because there would be hell to pay. People would say it's ridiculous, even though they don't know what the uh, what the focus of the study was. In order to understand this mystery, you have to follow the evidence where it leads. And all previous UFO studies around the world would only look at, as Colin mentions, the nuts and bolts of UFOs. Do we have radar visuals? Do we have metamaterials from crashes? That kind of thing, which is strange enough in itself to the general public to suggest that a government-funded program should investigate 
poltergeist type activity, um, the sighting of bipedal wolves. Um, they'd laugh you out of the, you, you couldn't have a Senate hearing about that. They'd laugh you out of the, out of the Senate hearing room. I asked Lou Elizondo in 2018, the spring of 2018, after I had released some of the details about the OSAP and some news stories, I, I asked him about OSAP and he, uh, I'll, I'll dig up those clips and share them for you some, with you sometime, but can you solve this mystery by only looking at military encounters, radar sightings, things of that sort? And he said, no, but you have to do what is possible to do. And ATIP, in, in part, carried on the study at a very limited scope because that what was doable. That's what they could get away with. That's what the UAP task force or whatever its successor is going to be could do. No politician is going to fund poltergeist research or looking into werewolves they would be willing to look at the national security implications of unknown craft entering our airspace. So it was both the brilliance of OSAP to be willing to follow the evidence where it leads and also its biggest challenge. It almost seems like OSAP was ahead of its time and should have been the follow-on investigations as opposed to taking the step back almost that ATIP became. George, you just released a brilliant interview with Jacques Vallée on the Trinity crash and on the follow-up conversation, Jacques mentioned how the third phase of what became OSAP would have been the implementation of artificial intelligence to truly analyse and make sense of the data that was gathered. Uh, now, Colm and George, how would AI have helped them and helped you in your investigations on the ranch? Well, the beauty of the, of the OSAP data warehouse was, number one, it was modular, so there was 11 separate databases, you know, tucked under the, the general uh, uh, OSAP data warehouse. Some of those were, were actually um, the 1,600 to 1,700 cases that the National Institute for Discovery Science had discovered. Um, that was one separate uh, database that was part of the OSAP data warehouse. There were others in terms of the, the current boots on the ground uh, investigations that OSAP itself was was discovering. There was another database that pertained to all of the events that had happened both on Skinwalker Ranch and in a 10-mile radius. So the the, the structure of the uh, the way o the OSAP data warehouse was designed was to to keep it extremely simple so that some kind of uh, inter interrogatory layer could be easily layered on top of the actual data itself. And that's actually what, what we, we have reason to believe that that's actually uh, what has happened, that, um, that uh, somebody has taken that extra step of layering the, um, the interrogatory layer, which is the AI layer, on, on top of the data warehouse. Now, the, the interesting part of this is, is you know, as you know with any database, it is always garbage in, garbage out. So OSAP went to immense trouble to try to scrub every single case that went into, uh, that actually passed quality control, so to speak, and entered into uh, these databases. Uh, we, could do, we could do some of that uh, more than other, others in terms of the, the, the databases, but we, we had a system, and it was based on Jacques Vallée's system, where we would assign a numerical index of credibility to every single case. And every single case was discussed in roundtable sessions where there were arguments back and forth where, where you know, 
this is a credible case, this is a sign, this number, or or not. So so you know we were trying to eliminate the garbage in, garbage out because once you layer an AI interrogatory layer on top of a data a data warehouse, it is completely um, automated, and therefore it is completely by definition garbage in, garbage out. So a database is only as strong as its weakest point. You have to wonder, Andy, where we would be as a as a civilization, as a world. Uh, if that program had been allowed to continue. They made so much progress in a little over two years in building the database, in trying to figure out what to make sense of, what was what was worth pursuing and what wasn't, in understanding the totality of the phenomena, not just things that fly around in the sky. You have to follow the evidence where it leads. That's what these guys did, and no other program in history has done it. If it had been allowed to continue now and it was still underway 10, 11, 12 years later, my gosh, we might have figured this stuff out by now, but it wasn't. It was killed. Uh, we're, I think we're all collectively uh, grateful that ATEP carried on and was able to, to study things in that particular venue of UFO nuts and bolts. Uh, but gosh, if, if ATEP and OSAP had been allowed to continue on, and, and on corollary paths, uh, we might be able to figure this stuff out by now. But that's not what happened. Do you think, George, the best way forward for this investigation would be that it merges again, that we have what whatever comes of these Senate bills going through, they start to look at places like Skinwalker Ranch again, or do you think that's far too far down the line? I think that that's not, not going to happen, not in the current political environment. It's, it's great that we now have bipartisan agreement so far that this research should be allowed to continue and that some kind of program is going to come out of this legislation that's being considered now. That's terrific. Uh, you got to deal, politics is the art of the possible, you know, and that's probably what's possible. And, and at, you know, be, since the New York Times story came out December 2017, it's politically viable for elected officials to come forward and say, I support this kind of research. But if you, that's for researching things in the sky that might be a threat to national security or to aviation safety. It's another matter for a politician to say, I agree with spending money to investigate places like Skinwalker Ranch with spooky stories of boogeymen and, and werewolves, uh, they'd be crucified. So I, I don't see that it's likely that the, whatever this new program is going to be, that it will be allowed to pursue that. It's p- not politically viable. I guess we have to be happy with just you know the, the slice of the phenomena that they, they w- will be able to investigate. But if you're ever going to figure this out, you got to look at the big picture. Ufologists who are, they have no restraints, political restraints on what they can investigate, but ufologists for years, they don't, they're not comfortable uh, with the story of a spaceship that's landed on the ground and Bigfoot standing next to it. They hate that. They discard (laughs) those kind of of stories. They don't like having poltergeist activity at the homes of UFO witnesses. Nobody's comfortable with that. The poltergeist people hate the ufologists. The ufologists hate the Bigfoot people. And that's that whole situation is a mess. But the fact is, it happens. It's always happened. Those kind of things have always been associated with each other, whether everybody, anybody wants to admit it or not. You have to look at the big picture. And I think it's unlikely that the big picture is ever going to be investigated in the way that OSAP did. Well, speaking of those varying fa- various factions and how they interact or don't interact with each other, the data warehouse that you've you've both mentioned is currently used by the US government. Are other countries using this too? For example, would the UK, who is a Five Eyes partner, have access to the same data? 
Well, I would certainly hope that that is the case in the future as as things evolve. But, you know, as as George is saying, we're in a very political, politically fractious time. And, um, you know, I think that the UAP task force is doing a great job and moving things forward slowly. But um, I, I would see um, hopefully in the future uh, that there would be some uh, reaching out to different countries because uh, different countries have a wealth of different information. OSAP actually began to tap into some of those, uh, you know, different countries, uh, what they have released publicly. Uh, we interacted with Brazil. We interacted with the UK. We, we, we got some of the MOD files that the UK had, had uh, downloaded uh, it for the public. So all of that has, has, once you put everything into a single database, you have a global viewpoint. So I think the more sharing, the better. And George, do you have any colleagues across the pond here from a journalist's point of view who have an interest in what's going on? Well, everybody's interested. I think they're interested to different levels of, of uh, interest who uh, they want the quick score of a, a, a story that makes headlines and in tabloids or in a paranormal sense. But I'm not sure that there's anyone journalistically who's digging into the with the same depth and breadth uh, into the topic as as what OSAP did or what we Colm and I and, and Jim Lukatsky have been doing since the book came out. No. Yeah, we've got a few journalists who, uh, through UAP Media UK, have tried to set up with various different stories or things they could go after, and they all tend to put the same content into their stories, where the phrase alien hunters tends to come up regularly. So it, it, all it is ends up, I think you said the phrase earlier, Colm, uh, garbage in, garbage out was the, the phrase. So that's tend to what happened here in the UK. I want to go back to something that you did mention earlier, though, and that was the biological studies. Is there DNA data in that data warehouse? And are there any common markers that has been noticed between experiencers? Well, that, that's, a, that's a very sort of, um, you, I, I'd say in order to answer that question, we would definitely have to, have to back up because um, the, <clears throat> the actual 24 to 27 month period that OSAP was in existence was a very, um, it was a very compressed uh, program in that we had to actually create the security infrastructure. We had to hire, you know, 50 people, multidisciplinary teams, including physician scientists and, and scientists. So we also had to contract out analytical chemistry, uh, elemental chemistry, organic chemistry labs um, for, for getting uh, sample analysis done. We had to uh, hire a whole bunch of uh, retired law enforcement officers in order to be able to create the chain of custody of evidence that was collected at these scenes. So some of the some of the uh, samples that were obtained were things like hair samples uh, that were found um, in unusual places, um, objects that were picked up at, at alleged UFO crash sites, etc., around the world. Um, so I, I guess the short answer to your question is, yes, there were some um, DNA analysis done. Um, we did not find a smoking gun in that with, with, with the short amount of time that we had, the 27-month period that we had. We had all, all of the 
the DNA labs contracted, and we did have some preliminary DNA analysis, but there's no way I would stand behind that as saying that this is uh, this was a smoking gun. But the key here was that we had the procedures in place, we had the templates in place, and we had the analytical uh, labs right across the spectrum in place. Sure. No, that, that's fine. I was going to follow up and just ask that something that's been mentioned recently uh, by Luis Elizondo on his interview with Kurt Jaimungo, he stated that there is evidence of occupants inside of craft. Do either of you have an idea of what sort of footage Luis Elizondo may be referring to? And have you seen a photograph or video deemed legitimate that would appear to show occupants inside of craft, whether that was part of Skinwalker Ranch and OSAP or not? I, I I would refer that question to Lou Elizondo, but I have not uh, seen uh, the evidence that he's seen. I have not conversed with him about it either. Was there ever any footage obtained through the, the study over the 24 months that you would deem as being of high fidelity, you know, high high quality footage that we maybe don't see in official releases? I think if you if you combine um, both the OSAP and the ATIP um operations. Um, I think there was a synergism between um, all of what was happening uh, with military pilots and what was happening on the carrier strike groups on both the east and west coasts. Um, a, lot of the, a lot of footage was obtained. Uh, there was some footage obtained uh, during the OSAP program, but again, I would hesitate to call that smoking gun. Um, I, I believe that the, the OSAP program should have run for five to 10 years at least, and that it should have, uh, it was designed actually to expand um, beyond that first two years. However, uh, because of congressional issues, because of politics, because of a whole, a whole variety of things essentially coalesced to shut the, the program down. Um, I would say OSAP did not discover a smoking gun um, but it, it, it has a lot of, it, it did have a lot of very interesting, compelling data. Uh, I should remind you, uh, Andy, Tic Tac, maybe the most significant case, the most significant UFO footage, given how it was used by the New York Times and others since it came out, that was, that was OSAP. That was an ATIP. That was pursued by OSAP. It, uh, it came walking in the door in the form of a guy named Doug Kurth, who was the first employee uh, hire, uh, by, hired by Colm Kelleher. And I guess Colm can tell the story of how they found out about Tic Tac, but that Tic Tac came out of OSAP. Uh, ATIP ran with it later, but it was an OSAP baby. Colm, you can tell that story maybe. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, as I mentioned, you know, we, we were going through this process of rapidly hiring a team. And one of the first things we needed to do was hire some really good program managers so this, uh, this colonel from the, the Marine Corps uh, walked in, uh, pilot, um, and within 10 minutes of the interview, I, you know, I knew I was going to hire this guy because he had all of the experience and he had a, uh, also had a really good demeanor. But at the end of the, con- the conversation, he essentially dropped a bombshell that he had been part of uh, a, a carrier strike group off the, the, the coast of San Diego in 2004. And this was uh, this interview happened in December 2008. So it was four years after the actual event had happened. And he, he went through the whole process of 
you know, he had been targeted to this area and that other F-18s had been targeted from the, the Nimitz carrier strike group. Um, and, and they had visual observations of this 46-foot-long uh, tic-tac-shaped object that was doing impossible maneuvers. Um, but it was Colonel Kurth who actually uh, told me about this case. And it was not a, as, as, a, as a prerequisite of hiring him. I'd already hired him when he actually dropped this bombshell. So obviously the first thing I did was um, get him to write up a summary of of this Tic Tac case. He wrote up a summary. He even named a set of uh, primary eyewitnesses, all of the pilots who had been involved in that. Uh, many of the uh, operators, radar operators on the USS Princeton uh, were also named. So um, we got immediately in touch with uh, Dr. Lekatsky at Defense Intelligence Agency, relayed this, this conversation to him with the, uh, the list of, of, uh, of these primary observers. And then Jonathan Axelrod, we we're calling him jo Jonathan Axelrod in the book, but uh, Axelrod then took the, the bit in his mouth and essentially had, by July of 2009, had conducted the full uh, scope research, uh, had, had um, interrogated all of the pilots, interviewed all of the pilots, all of the people on the, uh, the USS Princeton who had been involved in the Tic Tac case. And, and actually, probably by September of 2009, a full report of the Tic Tac incident had been submitted to Defense Intelligence Agency as one of about 105 different deliverables that were, were submitted to DIA. But sort of eight years before the New York Times got its hand on this story, Defense Intelligence Agency had a very thorough report um, of, the, uh, of the Tic Tac incident. It's a perfect example, Andy, of how OSAP and what became ATIP interacted in those days. OSAP was the official program. It had a group of people, uh, call them Confederates. They were not yet ATIP, but people inside the Pentagon and these agencies who were supportive of the OSAP effort. And when OSAP uh, got the information, those people in the Pentagon um, went to work and produced a report that ended up with DIA and OSAP. And uh, that was the example of how they worked at, at the time. There, there were supportive people. They had authorization to be working on this stuff, but they kept it really quiet because they didn't want to attract attention, even within the Pentagon, because attention meant trouble. We've heard from various people like Lou Elizondo, Christopher Mellon, that there are those within the Pentagon who are supportive, like you say, and to remain anonymous. Uh, do you think people like Axelrod, who obviously, like you've said, it's a pseudonym, will come forward in the future? I, I really, um, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, obviously, coming forward in the future carries a lot of baggage. So uh, my guess is probably no. Um, uh, this guy is a very sort of, you know, he's a well-credentialed um, person, and um, I would, I would doubt if he would have any motivation to come forward. Uh, most of what he has done, um, or at least I would say over half of what he has done is in the book, but there are a, there is a lot of what he has done that's not in the book. So I would say I would doubt if he comes forward, but who knows. 
I've got a few more questions just before we get to listener questions to finish off um, and we'll just kind of fire through these to make the most of it. Can you speak to the possible relationship between cattle mutilations and the food chain if there was anything that was uncovered during your time? In 2004, uh, I wrote a book called Brain Trust that, that had to do with uh, the possibility that there was a lot of um, misdiagnosis going on between um, what th- then was termed mad cow disease. And obviously the UK had more than its own fair share of experience of mad cow disease, uh, also known as CJD, that overlapped with, uh, with diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Bottom line is that in the United States, at least, there was not a great um, motivator for doing a lot of testing by the USDA because the more you tested, the more cases you would find. So um, there was a case, uh, there was a situation in the United, United States where a private company offered to do a whole bunch of BSC, uh, mad cow disease prion testing for uh, the United States government. And they were essentially shut down because the, United, the USDA did not want to you know, open the testing to everybody. Um, bottom line is that you know, 15 years uh, later, here we are in 2021, we've got a massive epidemic of dementia and there's multiple aspects of dementia that include Alzheimer's disease, Lewy body dementia, fr- frontotemporal lobe de- dementia, all the way across through the various prion diseases. Um, and it is, very, very difficult to pin down exactly what the origin of these, but there is, um, given that the, you know, the UK cases of variant CJD that occurred in the UK were basically the smoking gun for the hypothesis that what you eat will will affect what you uh, what you manifest in terms of pathology. So there is no doubt about it that there is a relationship between the food chain and the um, the genesis of uh, dementia. Just to put it in a different sense, a Column's book concluded that it does appear that somebody is <clears throat> is monitoring the spread. <clears throat> excuse me, someone is monitoring the spread of these diseases through our food chain, and what we see as evidence of that is mutilations. And the the exotic possibility is that it's maybe more than one someone that some human outfits or organizations are carving up cows, hiding under the umbrella of the weirdness surrounding cattle mutilations to begin with. But that someone else above that is also doing these these things. And that's where the origin of the phenomena testing for what's in our food chain and what might create really bigger problems down the road. No, thanks for that follow-up, George, as well. George, are you aware of any experimentation on the ranch with remote viewing? And I would also ask Colm to follow up with that as well, if there was any experimentation with the same thing. Well, I don't know if it was conducted. I don't believe it was conducted actually on the ranch. But yeah, there was some remote viewing exercises that were directed at the ranch. The book tells the story of Joe McMonagle, maybe the most uh, best known and most experienced remote viewer in the world, who was tasked with taking a look at the ranch, uh, the diagrams that he drew during this exercise, not knowing, other than just some random coordinates, not knowing what he was looking at, and it proved eerily accurate uh, to take a look at it. And there were some other uh, remote viewing 
uh, exercises that we undertook when Colm and I were working on the first book, Hunt for the Skinwalker. We tasked a, a Nevada group of remote viewers to take a look at it. They came up with some pretty interesting uh, uh, ideas. Uh, there was a military presence, some sort of a surveillance operation by military personnel uh, around the ranch taking a look at what's there. And uh, that's a that's a door that remains open for me. I think that's still a possible that's a possible true outcome. Uh, Colin probably has more details about the remote viewing. Other than McMonagall column, did anybody else take a look at the ranch for for bass? Well, uh, you know, the remote viewing program uh, was part of the initial proposal that we ma- that we made to the Defense Intelligence Agency. And at the time, the Defense Intelligence Agency did tell us. Uh, that they did not want a full-fledged program to go because it would be way too time-consuming, way too expensive. But they did give us authorization to conduct pilot experiments, one of which was uh, was uh, the Joe McMonagall experiment on Skinwalker Ranch, which actually turned out to be very um, spectacular in terms of, of what he came up with. Over the years, there there have been several initiatives that have been aimed at uh, at Skinwalker Ranch um, from the remote viewing perspective. Let's get into listener questions to make the most of the last part of the the show. And again, thank you both very much for your time. The first one comes from my own co-host, Dan. And Dan wants to know, has Colm been back to the ranch since Brandon Fugel took over? And any strange experiences since he finished work with Bass or OSAP? Short answer to that is the last time I was on the ranch was that photograph that was taken that's in the book of myself and George walking on the ranch um, probably uh, less than a week after or before Brandon Fugel took it over. So the answer to that is no. And um, I've had I've I've had a, a totally separate career since the um, since the OSAP program. So I've I've been immersed in aerospace. Um, at a pretty intense level of detail. So I haven't noticed any um, anomalous um, experiences actually since the end of that OSAP program. I'm sure you're grateful for that as well. Um, yeah, very much George, so. George, this one's for you from Barry. Um, and he, want, he says, George, could you confirm if the metamaterial known as the bar was found on the site? And what could you tell us about it? Yeah, this is back to the NIDS era. There were two, I think there were two of these strange uh, black metallic looking objects that were found on the property. And I know there's been a lot of speculation. They must be alien metamaterials or something. Uh, maybe something left behind where the aliens had a shootout with security guards on the property. There is there is nothing to that. I, I believe that, I think the NIDS guys identified those bars as old batteries. Is that right, Colm? Yeah, they were, they were, um, 1950s era batteries that were associated with some kind of uh, photography uh, way back in the day. They were they were pretty narrow diameter black um, black cylinders, and uh, we we located the actual battery that they went into. So uh, there was nothing mysterious, or you know, there was no, nothing interesting about them. We wish. We wish it had been alien metamaterials, yeah. a little sample of unobtainium, but that's not the case. I'll tell Barry to get in touch with Duracell or Energizer to follow up on that one then. <laughs> uh, the next question is from Bikir. And Bikir, this is for both of you, wants to know, how have your views on the phenomenon changed 
since your days investigating Skinwalker Ranch under OSAP? Well, I know mine have changed drastically. You know, when I entered the UFO field in 1980, the late 80s, uh, the the prevailing paradigm at the time were these things that we're seeing in the sky are craft from another world. These are ET visitors coming here to check us out, to take samples, to carve up some cows. And that's the explanation. And and maybe that's still part of the explanation. But after getting to know Colum and uh, being allowed by Mr. Bigelow to be on the ranch and to hear from witnesses to investigate that stuff, it, it flipped everything upside down. Um, you know, we have to be open to the possibility that whatever is happening there might be extraterrestrial, but it's not consistent with what we think we know about extraterrestrials around the world. This is something else. This is uh, all this weird stuff, strange phenomena, seemingly unrelated poltergeists, crypto creatures, crop circles, uh, you know, uh, all that stuff all happening in the same place. And it, Colm and I concluded in the first book that it sure seems like this is different versions of the same thing. And it's trying to tell us that reality is far different from what we thought it was. The reality isn't the same anymore. That this is telling us that the universe is a much more mystical, magical, complicated place than what we thought of. And that extraterrestrials visiting Earth once in a while just isn't an explanation that works for all the strange stuff we are seeing at Skinwalker Ranch and around the world. So yeah, it's direct directly challenged my my previous views. The idea that this is a an intelligence that is not from somewhere else, but it lives here, and it's always been here, interacting with humanity since the beginning, and maybe it was here before us. Yeah, I, I, my my take on this for the uh, for, for the BAS program, or the OSAP program, was that um, I think the take home after all of the data was accumulated and analyzed was that the um, the intermeshing of of human effects with the nuts and bolts, um, you know, direction w- w- was the right one to take. And uh, I've become more and more conv- convinced that the human effects part of the UFO phenomenon is is what needs to be explored. Um, you know, go back going back to Kenneth Arnold's book and uh, that he wrote regarding his original June 1947 experience. And then listening to what his daughter said about Ken Arnold's experience, um, you know, that the, the sort of nuts and bolts crops that he saw, the nine, the nine objects going down through near the Cascade Mountains in Washington. Um, I think in retrospect, Kenneth Arnold had a much more sophisticated, uh, not nuts and bolts explanation um, of, of the uh, of, of, of these crafts. So I would put myself in the same category. I came from the sort of the initial extraterrestrial nuts and bolts here to do research. Uh, but right now, I have no idea what UFOs are. I have no idea. Um, I have no idea what they are here to do. And um, the original um, scope of the DIA program was threat analysis. However, um, threat has two components. One is capability and the other is intent. Um, We have gobs of data on the capability aspect. We know that they outclass all of our F-18s and our best technology, and we've known that for 75 years, but we have no idea if there's any uh, intent or agenda. So therefore, 
you know, we can't make the statement that UAPs or UFOs are a threat. Thank you both for that answer. Um, Dan has a question that if the claims of having hundreds of reports is true, then the DIA seemingly lied to Senator John McCain by only giving him the 38 duds. Are they willing to go on record with that statement or do you think they would correct this? You know, I think uh, at I the would... time that DIA made those comments to the senator, um, they might not have known what they have. Uh, you know, it's not entirely clear that they've they've been able to find all this stuff. Uh, someone knows where it is, but, uh, you know, they're, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I don't want to go a step too far beyond what I should say, but uh, I'm not sure that they know all that they have. Sure. I think that's fair. And that's something I've mentioned on the podcast that sometimes people almost give factions of the government too much credit that they would know everything and have access to everything as well. So mistakes can happen. And maybe what they said is, you know, that that was correct at the time, according to them. A couple more questions to finish off, gentlemen. Uh, Karen has a question. She says, it seems that so much of what happens at Skinwalker Ranch is quite negative deliberately frightening and harmful were there any positive experience recorded by osap at the ranch and that goes to either of you well i I know that um everybody that has been on the ranch has remarked on what a beautiful uh you know beautiful place it is so 95 plus percent of the time it's a it's a pristine environment it makes you feel good um, it, it is beautiful. And I, I think all of the people that we knew uh, from military intelligence said the same thing, um, except for that 2%, which, which happens, uh, that is not particularly pleasant. But I would say in, in, you know, in total, uh, my experiences on Skinwalker Ranch were, um, were in general uh, positive. Mine too. I mean, I've said it before in public that I always felt good there, not just uh, reacting to the remarkable beauty of the place, but something extra, uh, sort of energized. I remember the first, second or third time I met the caretakers who spent all those years on the property 24-7, uh, they said the same thing. You know, it was like, I think it was my second or third visit. I said, God, I really feel good here. I, I was I was afraid that it would seem like I'm going against the grain, given all the weird things that had happened on the property. But then they told me they get the same thing. The the old caretaker, who was an elderly man, was up at the crack of dawn and work until night and, and couldn't get enough. He he had the same feeling that it kind of energized him. The the print, property seems to size you up. Uh, different people have different reactions. And people who come in with a, a negative, haughty attitude, who are uh, trying to convince themselves that they're not afraid, they're going to take it on, they're strapping guns, they seem to have often the, the most intense and negative experiences. In general, the ranch seems to be benign or at least indifferent to people, but sometimes it singles people out to give them a little show and to send something home with them. And it often is the people who are toughest and, and want to deny that there's anything to it. Those are the people that get hurt the most. It sounds like a little bit of karma uh, in some instances <laughs> comes, comes into effect. Um, two more questions. The, uh, you touched on this a little bit before, but I'd like to get your opinions on it properly. This is from Charlie. He wants to know, do you think that the phenomenon experienced by the Navy, such as the Tic Tac, is related to the same phenomenon being experienced at Skinwalker Ranch? Well, I, I can tell you that the, uh, the Tic Tac was a, uh, you know, a hard object. It was, it was caught through multiple sensors 
And so it was, it was not a phantom. It was, it was definitely a hard object on Skinwalker Ranch. Um, we, we, we reported in Hunt for the Skinwalker that the Gorman family um, had routine um, interactions with these so-called nuts and bolts uh, craft. Um, I know that I personally had an encounter or, or saw a, uh, uh, what looked like a, a, a low-flying jet fighter that came in uh, over Skinwalker Ridge, did a perfect herpin uh, turn above me completely silently, this was at, at night, but I could see the structure behind the um, be, behind the light, and then it went north back over Skinwalker Ridge. That to me looked like a an object. Jonathan Axelrod, when he was on the ranch, also uh, took a photograph of what looked like a metallic cylindrical object in the sky. And Brandon Fugel himself, you know, the owner of the Skinwalker Ranch, had a daylight sighting of a, of a metallic object. So. I would say that there's a central core of nuts and bolts craft that have been visually, um, you know, seen on, on the Skinwalker Ranch. But layered on top of that, there is the paranormal Disneyland. There's the all of the all of the different uh, objects seem to co-locate with paranormal phenomena at the same time. So. You know, if you if you go into any other so-called hotspot in the United States, for example, Dulce, New Mexico or Yakima, Washington, Crestone, Colorado, or any of the places out east, even Perm in Russia, they have the same sort of phenomenon um, that, you know, you've got these nuts and bolts objects that seem to co-locate at the same time with um, unusual phenomena. And these are all those categories that I was talking about earlier which we label human effects. I mean, you can make an obvious comparison, Tic Tac and, and uh, the other craft that have been investigated by ATIP. Yeah, they're similar to craft that have been seen over the ranch, but you don't know if that's a distraction or not. Whether, you know, I developed the idea that maybe the UFOs are like tinsel on a Christmas tree or, or shiny objects to get our attention and distract us from the real big mystery. If, if OSAP had been allowed to continue, we might have some answers by now, uh, but we don't. You know, we, we can guess, but we don't know. Right. Final question from Logan. Uh, thank you both for your unbelievably hard and relentless work all these years. For both of you, what is the number one most important reason for getting the truth out? And that's to George first. Well, I mean, we want to know our place in the universe. We want to know our, our place on the food chain. Um what is this intelligence that's been interacting with us throughout history? Does it affect uh, human affairs on a macro scale? We can see on a micro scale where it zips around and scares the bejesus out of pilots and military facilities and nuclear plant managers and things of that. We know that it interacts with humans in very frightening ways, what we'd call abduction and missing time experiences. There have been significant metal, uh, uh, physical effects, health effects as documented in this book. I mean, it's it's interacted with us for a long time, but at what level does it interact with us and how much does it shape human affairs on a, a global scale? Colum has had some interesting thoughts on this over the years, but uh, there's a suspicion that maybe, you know, what, whatever is going on, it's in their interest, not necessarily in our interest, and they might be manipulating us in ways that we cannot imagine and that they're not good for us. So, 
I think it's essential to our survival to figure this out. Yeah, I, I think I, I think from the um, just from the very narrow perspective of the book, um, I think the main reason that we decided to to move this book out into the public was that we we'd had between December uh, 2017, when the New York Times article had reported on all of the uh, what what ATIP was doing, and and the subsequent four years, I mean that really focused on you know, somewhere between 2% and 5% of what OSAP was doing. So one of the reasons for getting the information in the book out was that we wanted to correct the record and show that OSAP was probably the broadest scope, largest UFO program ever conducted by the United States government. Um, and certainly if you compare it against uh, projects Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book, that's probably accurate. Um, so, so the main motivation for doing that was was to show people that OSAP was a very successful program, but it had massive scope. Thank you both for your time. Very much appreciate it. People, you can get your copy of Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, an insider's account of the secret government UFO program at the usual places. I'll put the links in the description for that as well. And please check out George's interview with both James and Colm at Mystery Wire 2. Again, I'll put the description in the links. Thank you very much for your time, gentlemen. Thanks. Thank you. Talk Thank you. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fork. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little bit. Meditative game of fateful on meta. I can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. nearly kissed myself and I climbed out the window after the elf and I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head and everything was weird and everything was red and I called up my boys, they thought this was noise, they thought it was a dream, they thought it was my toys, they thought it was my problems and they think I should take care of me and I don't know what it is because it doesn't really scare me. Consider your space, consider your lies, consider your life, consider your eyes.